Welcome to the PRI Review, brought to you by the Population Research Institute. I'm your host, Christopher Mannion. PRI smeared by radical Soros-funded organization. Because we promote pro-life initiatives in Europe, we are accused of subverting democracy. A left-wing George Soros media organization in the United Kingdom, called Open Democracy, has just released a hit piece falsely accusing PRI of subverting democracy in Europe. This is nothing more than an attempt to smear the good work that the Population Research Institute and other Christian, pro-life, and pro-family organizations in the United States do on the continent. Open Democracy's report alleges that PRI, along with other Christian and pro-life organizations, is funneling so-called dark money into Europe because we do not disclose the names of our donors. Altogether, Christian and pro-life organizations have sent over $51 million of this dark money to Europe since 2008, they claim. The left-wing group further implies that U.S.-based organizations seeking to promote a pro-life or pro-family message are engaged in subverting democracy. A group of members of the European Parliament, cited in the report, spitefully refers to the work of PRI and other pro-life and Christian organizations in Europe as nefarious outside influences, end quote. Well, this is all nonsense. For over two decades, PRI has sought to defend the rights and dignity inherent to each and every person, from exposing human rights abuses and coercive population control programs, like China's one-child policy, to unveiling the myth of overpopulation and defending the right to life of the unborn, PRI has steadfastly upheld fundamental human rights and the culture of life. PRI's impact and reach has been influential in countries across the globe. Our international outreach and influence have infuriated those on the left, like open democracy, who seek to undermine the right to life and traditional family values. Like many Christian and pro-life nonprofits, PRI does not disclose the name of its donors. We have adopted this policy in order to protect the safety, privacy, and anonymity of our donors. We note that the U.S. government has never required 501c3 nonprofit organizations to make public the names of their donors, meaning that it is fully permissible under federal law for a 501c3 to keep its donor lists private. We are very proud of what we have been able to accomplish in Europe and elsewhere, says PRI President Stephen Mosier. We have helped pro-life, pro-family groups defend the right to life and traditional family values. PRI is largely supported by small donations from individuals who wish to support our mission to defend the rights of the voiceless, Mosier adds. Unlike some NGOs, we receive no government funding. The report's allegation that PRI's work in Europe subverts democracy is precisely the opposite of the truth. Instead, PRI fosters democracy through dialogue and advocacy defending the fundamental right to life and traditional family values. Over the years, we have provided technical assistance and training to pro-life and other like-minded organizations in Europe 
who approach us seeking to make their messaging more effective. It is revealing that one of PRI's critics quoted in the Open Democracy Report is none other than Caroline Hickson, Regional Director for the European Branch of the International Planned Parenthood Federation. The scale of this meddling by U.S. extremists is shocking, Hickson was quoted as saying in the report. This is utterly at odds with the European values of democracy and human rights. End quote. Yet, the parent organization for Hickson's own organization, IPPF, spends millions of dollars every year in foreign countries all over the world performing abortions, providing contraception, and advocating for the legalization of abortion. According to IPPF's 2017 financial statements, IPPF provided $51 million in grants to its subsidiaries and partnering organizations across the globe. That is to say, in one year alone, IPPF spent more money performing and promoting abortion and contraception than all U.S. Christian and pro-life organizations spent in Europe over the past 10 years combined. Add on top of this the fact that IPPF often promotes loosening restrictions on abortion in countries where the population is generally opposed to abortion on moral grounds. If ever there was meddling, at odds, with human rights, IPPF's promotion of terminating lives of the unborn is certainly it. Open Democracy's allegations are hypocritical given that a substantial proportion of Open Democracy's own revenue comes from left-wing philanthropic organizations in the United States. Its funders include George Soros's Open Society Foundations, the Ford Foundation, the Charles Stuart Mott Foundation, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and the Tides Foundation. The U.S.-based Wallace Global Fund was also a significant donor for Open Democracy's 50-50 project, which produced the report. According to Open Democracy's website, U.S.-based organizations gave Open Democracy at least £900,000, $1.1 million, from 2017 through 2018. Of this, Open Democracy received over $340,000 from the Open Society Foundation's George Soros's philanthropic organization alone. While Open Democracy implies that U.S. Christian and pro-life organizations are nefarious outside influences, Open Democracy itself promotes messaging within the U.K. and abroad supported substantially through outside influences. And indeed, it is Open Democracy's messaging, not PRIs, that is nefarious. Open Democracy's stance on a variety of issues falls outside the mainstream by far. A simple perusal of Open Democracy's own website reveals that they advocate for extreme positions on the fringe left, including legalized prostitution, abortion on demand, and transgenderism. Open Democracy also regularly attempts to portray pro-family countries like Ukraine in a poor light on account of the fact that the people there are generally opposed to general ideology laws and so-called same-sex marriage. Overall, it would seem open democracy is guilty of willingly receiving precisely what it accuses us of providing, foreign money to promote what would be considered nefarious outside influence. While PRI works to empower Europeans who want our help 
and share our pro-life values, Open Democracy is fundamentally seeking to transform European society in its own radical left-wing image. If that isn't nefarious, what is? This is the PRI Review from the Population Research Institute at pop.org. We'll be right back. Do you want to win pro-life legislative and political battles? For years, PRI has been helping pro-life leaders on the ground around the world to win legislative and political battles in order to protect the lives of the unborn. And now we're asking for your help so we can continue this vital work. Let me tell you more. In a number of countries around the world, there are still pro-life laws on the books. But the Planned Parenthood Abortion Liberales Malthusians are out there to get rid of those laws. Nearly five years ago, the Pontifical Council on the Family asked PRI to be the main organization to help the pro-life movements around the world to be more effective. In response to the Vatican's request, we created our Pro-Life Victory Seminars and our Pro-Life Strategy Guide. The seminars are grueling, demanding 12 to 14 hour intense working sessions. Only the most proven and successful leaders are invited to speak. Only the best and the most committed activists are invited to attend. To date, we have conducted 60 such sessions in 18 countries. We have trained more than 1,700 people who are serious about protecting the unborn in their respective countries. They have won some victories, but I'm not going to tell you about those because I don't want to put a target on the back of those leaders. I'm not going to tell you the names of their countries either because I don't want to make it even harder for them to do their work. But here's a hint. Most, though not all, have Spanish as their native tongue. It's no secret that south of our border, pro-abortionists are zeroing in on the existing pro-life laws in that part of the world. I cannot tell you the battle stories, although there are many, without endangering the victories of the leaders. I must ask you to take my word that some battles in some countries could not have been won without the training and support received from PRI. What kind of training am I talking about? Everywhere in the world, defenders of life need everything. Strategic thinking skills, campaign skills, legislative skills, lobbying skills to protect their pro-life laws and to stop pro-death initiatives. Around the world, we found that the biggest thing lacking is know-how. By that, I mean political sophistication. Here in America, we've been fighting pro-life battles for almost 50 years, and while we haven't won definitively, we have learned a lot about how to fight as well as how not to fight. One of the most important tools of our pro-life victory training is the manual that the trainees get to take home with them, the Pro-Life Strategy Guide, the guide to winning pro-life battles. Think of it as a field guide to activism. The guide is a compendium of know-how. It is 200 pages of distilled experience and wisdom, 
with step-by-step instructions about how to advance our issue in a representative landscape. Here's a small sampling of the know-how delivered in these training sessions. How to raise money, how to lobby legislators, how to write powerful pro-life advertising, how to effectively appear on TV and radio, how to enlist volunteers, how to get out the vote, and how to successfully debate pro-abortionists. All this and much, much more is covered in the training program and reinforced in the training guide. The first edition came out in 2012, but we are all out of them now. They have all been put in the hands of able pro-life leaders. So today we have had it revised and updated by two of the best and most successful activists in the Spanish-speaking world. Today, the new PRI, Pro-Life Strategy Guide, the guide to winning pro-life battles, is ready to go to press. This is where you come in. Will you help us get it into the hands of the people who need it? It's in Spanish right now, and that's as it should be, because we distribute it throughout the Spanish-speaking world. The Vatican wants this field manual in every diocese in the world. Will you help me to fulfill that request? PRI has ordered 10,000 copies of the guide to be printed, enough for every student who will attend our training sessions for the next several years, along with all the actively pro-life bishops around the world. Just the printing alone will cost $50,000. The whole International Victory Training Program costs another $50,000, and that is in addition to the field guide. But right now we want to get those guides printed. So I turn to you because I know you understand its value. The cost comes out to about $5 per book, which is not very much considering the impact it can have and the lives it can save. With your tax-deductible gift of $50, PRI can put this guide into the hands of 10 in-country pro-life leaders. With a gift of $100, we can make sure that 10 friendly bishops get a copy to guide their strategic thinking in the protection of life. No gift is too small. If you can only spare $5, please send it today. Unborn babies around the world will be safer because of your sacrifice today. Can we count on you to help PRI to continue to train and empower the pro-life movement around the world? On behalf of all those fighting to preserve pro-life laws around the world, thank you. Socialism sells, but is it false advertising? The Democrat presidential candidates are moving ever further left, and they're dragging their party with them. They've introduced a wave of radical legislative proposals that have struck a dangerous resonance with today's millennials. In fact, according to Gallup polls, young Americans are souring on capitalism. Less than half, 45%, view capitalism positively, a market shift since 2010, when 68% viewed it positively, according to Gallup. Note that young means between 18 and 29. So those polled in 2010 are today between 26 and 37 years of age. 
Have their views changed with real-life experience in a fairly capitalistic society? Well, we can only hope. But Gallup adds that a startling 51% of those polled in both 2010 and 2018 are positive about socialism. Now, that's less surprising from one angle. After all, Gallup polled young Americans, not young Venezuelans. American kids have never lived under socialism. All they know is its promises. But the 2018 group has lived through eight years of Obama advocating socialism, constantly hectoring hard-working Americans with his bitter, you-didn't-build-that line. What factors could possibly account for this consistent approval of socialism among a majority of America's young people? Well, here we will consider only two, both from the world of education. First comes the destruction of public education in recent decades at the hands of the ideological school unions. They constitute the most rabid and effective political force in current American life. Forty years ago, Jim Hitchcock reminded us of Hannah Arendt's observation of long ago. The aim of totalitarian education has never been to instill convictions, but to destroy the capacity to form any she wrote in The Origins of Totalitarianism. Note that word, origins, because the indoctrination of two generations of public school pupils and many of their private and parochial school counterparts, unfortunately, is indeed the original sin that destroys their ability to think. Consider, for years pupils were forbidden to compete in many ways. Academics, Let's abolish class rankings. Sports, everybody gets a prize. And in general, any challenge requiring effort. Everybody, great job. Now that rule goes for behavior as well. Remember deportment grades, pre-Woodstock, long ago? And it can be fatal. An Obama regulation that supposedly prohibited discrimination against minorities and disciplinary decisions, led the Broward County School Superintendent to leave the Parkland School shooter free to go back to his school. Because he belonged to a minority group, he was not reported for repeated offenses that would have caused his removal. He killed 17 of his fellow students. But what about thinking? Clearly, some folks think better than others because they're smarter. But wait, that's offensive. On the other hand, even the least intelligent pupil can feel just as well as the next guy. And the fake egalitarianism of the left begins in the schoolroom where every pupil is urged to feel good about yourself. Of course, that boils down to feeling good. And that offers the totalitarians the invitation to introduce sexual liberation in kindergarten. Because, after all, how else is everyone going to learn to feel good? Finally comes thinking, or, well, it doesn't. Thomas Sowell at Stanford's Hoover Institution thinks a lot. At 88, he's written eight books, since he turned 80. Of students who have been trained to feel instead of being taught to think, this prestigious thinker laments that, When they tell you how they feel, they think they're thinking. 
Many graduates feel good about not thinking, and why shouldn't they? After all, to have an intelligent conversation, they'd have to learn the basics of logic, rhetoric, language, and grammar. Then they have to learn about the subject at hand as well. And that's hard. But if they can tell you how they feel about Aristotle, about abortion, about religion, how do you argue with a feeling? They proudly proclaim victory because, after all, they not only feel strongly, but they have been indoctrinated with the proper feelings to feel strongly about. Now, with that preamble, we consider, second, the attraction of socialism in the light of $1.5 trillion in student debt held by current and former American college students. These debts have been accrued long uh, since the 1980s, but that amount has soared since Obama quietly took over the student loan program in 2010. During the cacophony surrounding the adoption of Obamacare that same year. To be sure, all of this debt was voluntarily incurred by students who thought that they were pretty smart. After all, they were smart enough to go to college in the first place, weren't they? They swallowed the line that graduating from any college with any major, with any GPA, would guarantee that a college degree would increase their lifetime potential earnings so much that the debt would be worth it. They could pay it off. Did they know what they were doing? Maybe not. The College Board reports that the average grade on the math section of the Scholastic Aptitude Test, SAT, for college-bound high school seniors in 2018 was 531 out of a total of 800. Now, maybe the average college-bound student could easily calculate the interest accrued on his loan each month over the course of several years, bearing in mind that any unpaid interest would be capitalized and added to his original loan balance, right? Maybe so. Well, maybe not. As the kids say, well, whatever. Millions of them don't want to pay back those loans, period. Obama's takeover of the program in 2010 means that now the government can bail them out, the way it did the financial institutions in 2008 during the mortgage crisis. Of course, the feds could have just paid off the mortgages in those days instead of the banks. That would have saved the underwater homeowners as well as making the banks whole. The loans would have been paid off. But that would have been too much trouble. So millions of homes were lost to individual homeowners. Advocates of student loan forgiveness reach for any feel-good argument. Forget about being rational. The loans are unfair because they're just too big. Or a generation of debtors won't be able to buy homes. Remember, the real estate lobby is powerful. Maybe they'll support these kids. Or an entire generation won't be able to afford getting married and have kids. Now, this trial balloon argument is designed to appeal to us pro-family advocates. Or, gee, many colleges might close when students realize that they aren't worth it. Of course, this is supposed to be a tragedy. And so on. All of these arguments take for granted the notion that student debt is somehow different from the debt owed by taxpayers to the IRS every year. That was $1.6 trillion in 2017. 
or by homeowners whose mortgage debt is held by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and other federal agencies. That's $5.5 trillion. And this and so much more, says Prufrock, but it doesn't matter. The far left dominates the Democrat presidential primary season, and each candidate is desperate to stake out a position that will distinguish him or her or them. I guess you have to choose your preferred gender pronoun at the door. Distinguishes them from the rest. And as usual with socialists, that means promising more government money to more people. And you can count on this. Many fairly intelligent folks, or many otherwise fairly intelligent folks who are burdened by student debt, will feel good, really good, about the government telling you and me to pay off their student debts. This is PRI Review from POP.org. We'll be right back. What's the best way to celebrate Humane Vitae's 50th birthday? For most of us, the answer is close to home, and specifically in our own parishes. Here's why. Six years ago, when Timothy Cardinal Dolan was president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, he admitted that our bishops have had laryngitis on Blessed Pope Paul's beautiful encyclical. Laryngitis for 50 years. Unfortunately, that's still true for many bishops who are too tied up with the political agenda of their national bureaucracy in Washington. There, Issues like global warming, socialized medicine, and federal contracts for the bishops' welfare agencies have dominated the agenda for years, crowding out pro-life efforts and leaving Humane Vitae an orphan. That doesn't mean that the lay faithful haven't been asking. We have. In fact, pleas to our shepherds have had some heartwarming results in recent months, with several bishops coming forward with strong public defenses of Humane Vitae. But the real work has to come from the grassroots, and that means the laity, because our busy bishops can't do it alone. They need our support, our encouragement, and our prayers. After all, the pro-life movement started at the grassroots, and its strength has stayed there. Bishops are often supportive of pro-life groups in their dioceses, but few are focused on them. Most chancery staffs spend much more time on immigration, refugees, fundraising, and other programs that receive federal funding. Pro-life efforts receive no federal funding, so pro-lifers have to fend for ourselves. While our bishops have countless distractions, our parish priests know us and we know them. They offer our most reliable source of support and encouragement when it comes to celebrating Humane Vitae's birthday party. And a wise pastor has a good suggestion on how to make it work. It boils down to this. Instead of telling your pastor, Father, you ought to do something about this. Tell him, Father, a group of us would like to have a reading group in the parish to study Humane Vitae. We've got the texts, the commentaries, and all the materials. All we need is some space in the parish one night a week and an announcement in the bulletin to spread the word. Don't worry, we'll do all the work, but we'd love to have your support, and it would be great if you could join us whenever you can. And by the way, a further note from long pastoral experience. Don't ask Father on the way out of Mass. 
Write him a note and ask him for a few minutes of his time at his convenience. There you'll have his full attention, and he can write down what he remembers of your conversation, and that's impossible when 50 or 100 people are shaking his hand after every service. Writing that letter also gives you the opportunity to pad your pitch with some supporting evidence. In this case, not only the support from bishops, including your own, we hope, but especially referring to the world-class conference that the bishop sponsored in Washington at the Catholic University of America last April. It was thanks to the support from Catholic University stalwart President John Garvey that this conference came off without a hitch with the admirable support The conference offered three days of top-notch speakers and presentations, and they're all online. Supporters of Humani Vitae can cite this national conference as their inspiration for activities throughout the country in the diocesan and parish levels. And here's some great news. Our new website devoted to Humani Vitae is now online. It's a treasure trove of information for your parish group. Here's how to find it. Go to your website browser and type in humanevitae.org, no spaces, and remember, the dot is a period. There you will find a treasure trove of information for your parish group. Just go to humanevitae.org to find not only the masterful history of contraception by Dr. Gonzalo Herranz in four languages, and by the way, that's the history of the promotion of contraception against church teaching and natural law for over a hundred years. But it also includes the latest news and links in a wide array of resources. We'll be updating the site continually with new reports, materials, and insights from all over the world. In no time, it will be your go-to site for Humane Vitae News. Remember, just go to humanevitaeproject.org and enjoy. And please don't forget to support PRI so that we can keep this project worldwide in four languages going until everyone knows the truth about Humane Vitae. Ohio Passes Heartbeat Bill Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has signed the Human Rights and Heartbeat Protection Act, SB 23, into law. The new law prohibits doctors from performing an abortion if a heartbeat can be detected. Exceptions include cases to save the life of the mother or to prevent the substantial and irreversible impairment of a major bodily function. The new law follows eight years of effort by pro-life lawmakers and makes Ohio the sixth state to have passed such legislation. Using the best ultrasound methods available, a heartbeat can be detected as early as five to six weeks gestation before many women are even aware that they are pregnant. Most abortions are performed after that point. Government's role should be to protect life from the beginning to the end, Governor DeWine said at the bill's signing. The governor said that the new law is, and I quote, imperative to protect those who cannot protect themselves, end quote. We congratulate the good citizens of Ohio, said PRI President Stephen Mosier. Ohio pro-life leaders like Molly Smith of Cleveland Right to Life and Jane Folger Porter, founder and president of Faith to Action, 
have championed heartbeat legislation in the state for a decade. Their efforts have paid off for babies. SB 23 was passed by the Ohio Senate on March 13th. A revised version of this bill passed the House of Representatives on April 10th on a vote of 56 to 40. The Senate later that day approved of the revised Bill 18-13, to sending the bill to Governor DeWine, who signed it on April 11th. During his 2018 gubernatorial campaign, DeWine had vowed to sign a heartbeat bill if presented the opportunity. Pro-lifers in Ohio have long sought to pass a heartbeat bill. In 2011, the Ohio House of Representatives became the first state legislative body in the country to introduce heartbeat legislation. The Ohio General Assembly had twice before passed heartbeat bills in 2016 and 2018, but both bills were vetoed by then-Governor John Kasich. In 2018, the Ohio Senate fell only one vote short of overriding then-Governor Kasich's veto. Heartbeat laws had also been adopted in Arkansas and North Dakota in 2013 and in Iowa in 2018, although these laws have since been blocked by the courts. Heartbeat laws were also adopted this year in Kentucky and Mississippi, though a federal judge has placed a temporary hold on the Kentucky law, preventing it from going into effect. Another heartbeat bill passed by the Georgia legislature in March is also expected to be adopted soon. During his 2018 campaign, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp vowed to support a heartbeat bill. Ohio's new heartbeat law has the potential to ban the vast majority of abortions in the state. According to data from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, known as the CDC, 78% of abortions in Ohio in 2015 were performed at or after seven weeks gestation. According to the Ohio Department of Health, there were 20,893 abortions in Ohio in 2017. SB 23 makes aborting an unborn child with a detectable heartbeat a fifth-degree felony punishable with 6 to 12 months in prison and up to a $2,500 fine. Additionally, SB 23 permits the state medical board to revoke or suspend the medical license of any abortionist that violates the requirements of the heartbeat law. The state medical board may also assess up to a $20,000 fine for each violation. The money collected through these fines would go towards paying for foster care and adoption programs in the state. The Ohio House of Representatives made a number of important revisions to the original Senate version of SB 23. These included incorporating stiffer penalties for abortionists who violate the law. The House also removed a problematic provision from the Senate bill. The method of ultrasound that is most likely to detect a heartbeat early in pregnancy. The removed provision would have specifically exempted abortionists from using that method. This exemption would have substantially moved back the gestational limit on abortion in the bill. Because an unborn child's heartbeat is usually not detectable by transabdominal ultrasound until about 7 to 12 weeks gestation. So the House removed this provision from the bill. Instead, it directed the state director of health to issue within 180 days regulations specifying the methods abortionists should use when testing for a heartbeat. This crucial change could allow the state of Ohio to ban abortion as early as six weeks of gestation instead of from seven to 12 weeks. The ACLU has already vowed to sue the state of Ohio over its new heartbeat law. 
Pro-life lawmakers in Ohio expect that the law will be blocked by the federal courts, setting up a legal battle that could ultimately land the case at the U.S. Supreme Court and possibly lead the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. In a radio interview with Hugh Hewitt, earlier this year, Governor DeWine acknowledged that Ohio's adoption of a heartbeat bill would most likely trigger a lawsuit. Ultimately, he said, this will work its way up to the United States Supreme Court, and they'll make that decision. The Supreme Court's current precedent is laid out in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, prohibits states from banning abortion prior to viability. The Supreme Court defines viability as the point in pregnancy at which the unborn child can survive outside of its mother's womb. Heartbeat laws, however, ban abortion far earlier in the pregnancy than the court's current definition of viability. As such, heartbeat laws directly challenge the court's viability standard. If a case on heartbeat legislation makes it to the Supreme Court, it would provide the court with an opportunity to overturn Roe v. Wade. This has been the PRI Review from the Population Research Institute at pop.org. Thanks for listening.